Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the very word of God. Several years ago, when my older two children were much younger, we uh, went as a family to our neighborhood association's monthly meeting. It was held at a, another church building, and uh, as we were sitting in there listening to the business of our neighborhood. Uh, our kids were playing behind us, uh, I assumed, without any problem, until the meeting was over, and we turned around and saw that they had taken markers and marked all over the walls. Of the, there was a whiteboard, but they had missed the whiteboard, and it was just all over the sides of the walls, and I was absolutely horrified, absolutely horrified. And... Um, I thought there is like no, what are we going to do? Um, it was late in the evening, kind of everybody had left. And, you know, I sort of thought, well, we could just kind of leave and nobody will know until somebody shows in and won't know. But I felt like really convicted in conscience, like this is a problem. And I was so upset um, and I didn't think there was any solution. But the, the interesting thing was my, my wife, was, Mindy, was not very upset. She was not very concerned. And this made me even more angry. I mean, how can we not be horrified at what's going on? And we got in the car, and I'm just, I can feel myself just fury. I'm mad. I'm mad at my kids. I'm mad that my wife's not mad. I, I mean, it's just horrible. And then Mindy told me why she wasn't so upset. She said, we're just going to go home, and we're going to get this thing called a magic eraser. I have never heard of a magic eraser before. But we picked up this little sponge, took it back to the church, and my wife walks up to the wall and poof, 
the marker was gone. It was clearly a magic eraser. And I know that you Google magic erasers and they like destroy your skin and like tear up the whole world, but that's the point. These things can erase anything. It is really phenomenal and I love to this day magic erasers. They are more powerful than any destruction that your kid can cause to the wall near you. They are amazing. But what's even more amazing is what we just heard read to us. What's even more powerful, more powerful than you can imagine, more powerful than the magic eraser, is what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. In this passage, we find a series of contrasts between sin and death on one side and grace and life on the other. Here is the matchup of all matchups. Two very, very strong powers. But this morning, I'm here to tell you that the power of grace and life is infinitely more powerful And it is the undefeatable power that comes to us and is offered to us only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of grace and life cleans up the mess that sin and death have have brought and it creates an even more beautiful world than there was before. I would like you to consider with me this morning from the passage that we just heard read, First, the ruthless reign of sin and death. Second, the greater power found in Christ. And then finally, the righteous reign of grace and life. The ruthless reign of sin and death, the greater power that's found in Christ, and the righteous reign of grace and life. Now, the central point then that we encounter first in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14 is the ruthless reign of sin and death. Now, you have to think about this for a minute because if you don't meditate and ponder the ruthless reign of sin and death, then the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ simply will not have its amazing effect on you that it is meant to have. So according to the Bible, neither sin nor death were operative in the world that God first made. Instead, as verse 12 says, Romans 5:12, sin entered the world through one man. This, of course, is the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And along with that sin came death, just as God had warned. The second part of verse 12 is interesting because it tells us not only that death results from sin, but notice what it says. It also says that sin is explained by death. In other words, because, as verse 15 says, we all died in Adam's sin, we are all born dead. (laughs) We are all born dead in our relationship to God. The reason why we sin is because we are dead. It's because of our spiritual status of death that we sin. 
And we know that this spiritual alienation from God, this death, has spread to literally every single human being because every single human being sins. We sin because we are dead to God. We sin because we are separated from his life. Now, we do not need to concern ourselves here with questions about how life as we know it could possibly exist without natural death. There are various Christian answers to that question, but that is not our primary and present concern this morning. The point is simply to be conceded that death reigns. The world that we now live in is a world in which death reigns. It's as natural to us now as anything. We all die. Death reigns. And the reign of death also explains why sin is so natural to us too. Everyone sins. We die because we sin, and we sin because we are dead. This is what the Bible says. Now you'll notice that verse 12 sets up a contrast but it doesn't bring it to completion. The just as, at the beginning of verse 12, doesn't have a so also. You notice that? But Paul hasn't forgotten the comparison. He's going to complete it a little later in our passage. But before he does that, the reason why he breaks off the comparison here is because he wants us to feel the force of the devastation that has come to every single one of us through one man's sin. Just consider how much sin and death there has been throughout history. What explanation can there be for history's horrors? Paul says in the next verse, we cannot blame it on the law of God revealed to Israel at Mount Sinai. For, he says, verse 13, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So the revelation of God's holy law allows us to count sin. You can't identify and register violations if there's no law that defines them. But we know that sin was still pervasive because death reigned, he says, from Adam to Moses. Because people died even before the law of God was revealed to Moses, this is all the evidence we need to see that the ruthless reign that sin and death has held over all human beings, whether they know it or not, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, is not to be explained by the law. You see, many secularists today want to argue that one of the great problems in our world is religion. Religion, it is said, is what makes people think themselves better than others. It's religion that causes people to look down on others and to oppress them. Sin is explained, many secularists would say, by religion. But what will we get if we take religion away? What if we have no rules, no law that comes to us from some higher power? Well, the Bible tells us, just consider what we have before the law came. Verse 14 suggests, even in those years, those many years between Adam and Moses, before God revealed his holy law in stone, 
death still reigned. These secularists, on the one hand, are right that religion cannot save us because even the law of God cannot get us out of the mess that we are in. The law of God is no magic eraser. All it can do is heighten the sense of how bad we truly are, how hopeless we are, how pitiful is our natural condition. We dare not find any hope in our religious practice or in our moral judgments. We, right here, Christians, we just like everyone else in this world share in the common descent of Adam and his fallen, dead state. Our hope is not in our religiosity. Our hope is not in our obeying and keeping God's laws and our moral judgments. Our hope is not in what we see is wrong or right in this world. Our hope has to be somewhere else. Now again, we need not get into the debates here about the existence of Adam and Eve, the origins of human beings. The point is simply that we human beings share this common characteristic, not just of death, but also of sinning, of running in the exact opposite direction of the way that God tells us to go. We who are Christians should know this more than anyone else. We, we, we are no better because we are religious. We are, should be even more aware of how far from God we have fallen. But incredibly, the solidarity that we find as human beings, the fact that we are all stung by sin and death, it actually points us in a different direction. The verse says here, look at the end of, what is it, verse 14. Yes, the end of verse 14. Our common ancestor, Adam, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. You see that? In other words, there was to be a new Adam. The promise of God is that there would be a new epoch of history that would begin, a new epoch that would be characterized by the action of a new Adam. Now, of course, we know this is a reference to Jesus. And just as sin and death mark the epoch of the first Adam because of his rebellious action, so this new era would take on a new character because of the second Adam's righteous action. So next, having explored the ruthless power of sin and death in verses 12 to 14, Paul turns to the contrast of the greater power that's found in Jesus Christ. What we find in verses 15 through 17 is a negative comparison. <laughs> in other words, a contrast between these two powers, both of which originate in one man and his representative act for all who are united to him. These two competing powers, they're similar enough to compare, but they are very different and require us to see a contrast. So verse 15 sets up the contrast between the free gift on the one hand and the trespass on the other. Now, we've just explored the latter, the trespass, but it's restated here in verse 15. The trespass is the sin of Adam. 
And, and what results from this trespass is the spread of death to all men, as verse 12 says. By the way, verse 15 says many died, but this is meant to be read in the inclusive sense that the Hebrew and Aramaic would have. And so it's functionally equivalent to all in verses 12 and 18. The contrast to this one trespass and its effects is the free gift. So what is this free gift? The Greek word here is charisma. And what Paul has in mind becomes clear as we read on. He says, For if many died through one man's trespass, what would you expect him to say? We would expect that he might say, Much more many will live through one man's obedience. And he will, in fact, say exactly that in verse 19, but he doesn't say that here. Here he wants to contrast the effects of Adam's sin on us all and the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. The effect of setting up the contrast this way is to show us that what has triumphed over sin and death is nothing less than the astounding miracle of divine grace. What has triumphed over sin and death is the astounding miracle of divine grace. It is this grace which is powerful enough to triumph over the greatest enemy that every single one of us knows, and that is the power of sin and death. It's a, it's a power that you can't, you can't overcome. You can't get yourself out of. But what is divine grace? What exactly is meant by it? Grace is one of these Christian words. We sing about it. We've sang about it already. We're going to sing about it some more. But let, let's ponder this for a moment because the Bible is very specific on what it means by grace. We must not conceive of God's grace as anything other than what has come to us in that one man, Jesus Christ. Grace is not a thing that exists separate from, apart from, Jesus Christ. God is gracious only in and through his son. Grace is not a subjective experience of encountering God and saying, he was a kind deity. That's how many people think of grace. God is, I sin and God is gracious. In other words, God is just kind to me. He doesn't hold me accountable for my sin. That's true only if, only if by grace we understand the objective reality, a gift that God has given to us in and only in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is the grace of God? It is a gift. It is the gift that has come to us freely 
because of Christ and only because of Christ. So in other words, this gift, this free gift is grace in Christ, hyphenate the three words. (laughs) It's only grace that comes in Jesus. You don't get it any other way. So this gift, this grace in Christ is what is contrasted with the results of that one man's sin, as verse 16 emphasizes. The results of Adam's sin, what has come to us because of one man's sin? We, we've already been told it's, it's death and sin by death. Here, though, notice in verse 16, it's called condemnation. This is a word that signifies not so much the verdict, but the sentence, the judgment, the penalty that comes upon the one who's been convicted. That penalty is indeed death, the ultimate sentence from which there can be no chance of parole. So what would be the opposite of this penalty? What would be the opposite of the condemnation, the the sentence? Not just the verdict, but the punishment, the penalty that comes. And the contrast to this sentence of death is indeed found in the word, at the end of verse 16, justification. Here's that word again, that word that means righteousness. To be justified in this context is to be given a different verdict, a verdict of not guilty and therefore to be vindicated, to be cleared from all guilt and set free from the sentence of death. We know that's what justification means. Paul has already said that. But notice his point here. The point he emphasizes here is a contrast that Paul is making. Now, notice how the contrast is. He, it's, it's found in his main point. The emphasis he's making is found in the words, much more. Verses 15 and 17, you see them? Much more. But I want you to see that this much more is also in verse 16. The sentence of death, look at it. The sentence of death comes after just one man's trespass. But the free gift, the vindication, came following many trespasses. So let that sink in for just a moment because we're talking here about the the amazing miracle of divine grace. Here's how one commentator puts it. That one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. This is perfectly understandable. but that the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is the miracle of miracles utterly beyond human comprehension. This is simply what no one could expect. See, you're, you're a Christian so you've kind of already, you've already read the end of the story. You already know this. So you've lost all of your awe. Let's try to get it back for just a moment. When you read the story of Genesis 3, you're not surprised to hear God pronounce judgment on the sinners. Who wouldn't do that? 
But what would you expect to hear after you read Genesis 4 and one man murders his brother? And after Genesis 37, when 10 brothers sell the 11th as a slave? Or after Exodus 32, when the Israelites, having been so amazingly rescued out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt, construct a golden calf and bow down and worship it? Or after 2 Samuel 12, when King David commits adultery and then murders to cover it all up? Or after Ahab has Naboth murdered in 1 Kings 21 so he can steal his vineyard? And after countless other sins of biblical history? And after billions of other sins in the rest of history? And after the secrets of your heart and mine have been exposed? What would you expect after the accumulation of all of these sins? Not this. Certainly not this. Not grace. Not a verdict of vindication that, listen, does not merely make up the ground that has been lost, but completes and restores the destiny of which we have all fallen short. The gift of God, which is the only remedy for sin and death, is the infinitely superior, abundantly greater power of grace in Christ that does not balance the act of sin, but overbalances it. That's amazing. And you couldn't have made it up. You could not have made this up. This is no man-made religion. This is the amazing miracle of divine grace. What does it mean? It means, just look at verse 17. Here's what it means. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness have not merely escaped the condemnation of death, but will now reign in life. You want to be amazed? Look, look at what it says. Verse 17, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, you have not merely, merely been vindicated, declared not guilty, cleared of all wrongdoing. You have been overbalanced. <laughs> the, 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 the whole pendulum has swung the other direction. And instead, you now reign in life. Do you hear what it says? From death row to the royal throne. That is the amazing miracle of divine grace. And it's yours in Christ. It's yours in Christ. You weren't just released from prison. You were now placed in a position of royalty. That's what you have in Christ. You're still not amazed. I, I mean, I... I don't know what else you could get than this. This is the how much more, the superior power that comes to us from God's grace in Christ. Listen to anyone who will have it. To anyone. Anyone. There's no qualification that you have to first secure to have it. Nothing. Well, I have to, nope. It's simply yours by faith in Christ. That's it. So now we are ready with verse 18 to see that comparison that Paul started in verse 12. Remember how he broke it off? He, he said, just as, and then he, Paul likes to do this. I mean, I can't imagine. This guy's mind must have just been so overwhelmed by the grace of God. that This is how he writes 
but he hadn't forgotten. So he comes back to it. We have seen what it is that has come to us through one man's sin, through one trespass. These are the effects that we live in day after day. It's why you get weary. No matter how much you try, you just can't change. No matter how much you hope in God, things seem to go wrong. No matter the misery that you find yourself in, you just can't seem to find relief. Can you identify? Is this the world you live in? A world marked by sin and death? The Bible tells us things can be different. No, no, no. The Bible tells us things are different in Christ. In Christ. Consider what is different when the righteous reign of grace and life is realized. Here is the gospel promise, verse 18. Look at it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is the story of God in the Bible is summarized quite well by Romans 5.19, the next verse. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. There's the story of the Bible in one verse, right there. If you can see the problem, then you should see the solution. Plain as day. If you will accept the Bible's account of the relationship between sin and death, and how these have come to us all by one man's disobedience, then you should be able to see what the only possible solution is. What could possibly come to us then by one man's obedience? In fact, even a non-Christian or a non-religious person can actually see the problem. I was fascinated recently listening to one of my favorite podcasts to hear an unbeliever say that the problems in this world are largely caused by the fact that we humans see other humans as the other. The problem, he said, is in the human heart. I was like, what? (laughs) The problem, I mean, you are like just endorsing the Bible. You call yourself not a Christian, and here you are just saying, I agree with the Bible. The problem is in the human heart. (laughs) And here's what he said. And since we, this is a direct quote, we live separate, we live separately, we're educated separately, and we worship separately. This is a non-religious person. He says, we have become fragmented from people who are not like us. We lose these important human connections. And so we start to see each other as the enemy, the other. And then he said this, we're doomed. I changed the language a little bit, but that's what he said. We're doomed. And I wanted to say, hey, man, yes, indeed. If this is all we've got, if all we left with is the problem is in the human heart, we're just divided, separated from each other, there is no hope. There is no hope. 
You see, the solution does, in fact, lie in the, in the need to be united, for us to be drawn together. We know this. Like, the problems in our world come from being divided. So the solution comes from being united. But something has to change the heart to get us together in the first place. We are the problem, so the remedy has to come not from within, but from without. Or as verse 19 says, the problem is disobedience. So obedience is the solution. (laughs) Yes, we need human interaction, but just as one human interaction ruined us, there's one human interaction that we need to save us. We need to be united to a second Adam. Don't you see it? We need to be cut off from this first Adam that has ruined us, that has brought a death sentence upon us all. And we need to be united to a greater Adam whose obedience is enough to save. The obedience of Christ that's mentioned here is certainly a reference to his death and resurrection viewed as a single act sufficient to save just as Adam's single act was sufficient to condemn. Now notice carefully, carefully what verse 19 says. Adam's sin, Adam's one sin is what has made us sinners. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, don't worry. You and I are condemned not only because of Adam's sin, but because of our own sin that results from his. Death has passed upon all men because all have sinned. And in the same way, we will not find life merely, merely, only because of Christ's obedience. But look what verse 19 says. But also by in some way being made righteous. There's our justification word again. As a result of his obedience. Now, So how does that all happen? How does that all happen? To, to be made righteous here is clearly something that still awaits us in the future. The tense of the verb indicates this. It's a future tense. So when we use the word justification or righteous, we mean not only a declaration of righteousness, a status that is upon us. It, 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 it definitely means that. But the word carries more weight than just that. To be justified, to be declared not guilty, that is, to be vindicated, necessarily leads then to, here's another V word, vivification, to Life rather than death. You see the connection? If in Adam we've been declared dead, sin follows, death 
is always reigning. But we who are declared just, a status that is ours by faith in the just one, will also, according to verse 19, be made righteous. And the evidence for this, listen, the evidence that we will be made righteous is not in reaching moral perfection, however much that may be our destiny, but rather the proof that we are made righteous, that we are vindicated, is that we will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. Resurrection, vivification, renewed life. This is what we must see in this passage. In the same way, verse 20, that sin and its effects become highlighted and made more apparent by the presence of the law, so the power of justification by faith in Christ becomes even more apparent too. For the grace of God, which is Christ for us, is even more abundant where sin and death seem most obvious and most prevalent. Where sin increases, verse 19, grace abounds all the more. So the end result, verse 21 says, is just as sin reigned in death, that is, death as the objective evidence of sin's reign. You, you want to know, you want to know that sin reigns? Go to a funeral. It's a testimony that no one can deny. So, just as sin reigned in death, here's what it says, verse 21. So now, so now, now, so now also grace will reign and reign forever through the righteousness unto life that is found only in Jesus Christ. Where grace reigns, the result is life. I mean, like, not being dead. (laughs) Are you clear? Not some kind of mysterious, esoteric life. I mean, bodies with hearts beating brainwaves still going. Life, not death. If you and I are united to Christ by faith, if we're united to the second Adam, then righteousness and resurrected life, immortal, eternal life, is what we can expect. One of the reasons that we struggle to believe this, and I'm, I mean Christians, we struggle to believe this, is because it seems like one of those too-good-to-be-true promises. My kids have always gotten excited. They'll come to me sometimes. They'll say, Dad, look what came in the mail. A free video game system. We won. I mean, we, like, of all the people in the world, 
the Jansen family won the new video game system. And their eyes are big. <laughs> They're just like, what? And I'm not very excited. I mean, not because I don't want the video game system. That's part of me. Not excited. But also because I know, right? Like, I'm, I, I've, I've figured this out. It's not true. And I just look at them. I don't even look at the flyer. I say, no, we didn't. <laughs> right? You do the same thing. I get the little text message on my phone. You have won the... No, I haven't. Spam, delete. You do that? We don't get excited because we know it just that. No, it isn't. It's not true. The pervasive power of sin has yielded to us the world that we know today. A world divided a world in which what you can expect every day when you hear the news, read the news, is bad news. Yeah? Right? We just can't imagine it being any other way. We're not, we're not pessimists. We say we're just realists. <laughs> yeah. So there might, there might be, we think, some marginal improvements, maybe here and there, but life will go on. If people will suffer, others will be lucky, eventually we die, and maybe, just maybe, there's an afterlife, but you know, that's the stuff for religious people to debate. That's what they're all interested in. But this earthly mortal life, it's what you actually care about most because it's the only life you know. We, we, because he lives, I can face tomorrow, we say. Like you care about tomorrow. You care about your job, your family, broken relationships, suffering, pain, struggles in your marriage, difficulties with your kids, sickness. Have I named your issue yet? You care about these things. And the promise of the gospel is God cares about that more than you do. He made this life. He made your body. This is a world in which we get a short time and then we breathe our last and we die and that's it. No. That's not it. Oh, yeah, well, all right, right, I know. There's heaven, there's an afterlife. Yes, amen. But because, only because, God cares more about this life than you do. He has promised to us and he has given to us in Christ a new world, a new world, a world in which sin and death no longer reign. Righteousness and life reigns. And the proof that it's true is the promise of Easter Sunday. It's the promise that there's an empty tomb. The Savior lives and in Christ you will live as well. Your body will be raised to eternal, immortal life. Can you imagine a world like that? Can you dare to believe that it's even a possibility? The gospel of Jesus is fundamentally about this life that we know, and the promise is that there is real, lasting hope for this world, a hope that has a future still to be seen. Yes, it does. We pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. 
But this resurrection doesn't come until he comes. But yet, still, because he lives, it's a new world that has already been inaugurated. It has already broken in to this present evil darkness. In Christ, you get to live in it now. As you probably already expected, as we got in the car that day to drive home, and I'm furious, and my wife wasn't furious, it led to a lot of tension in our marriage. It was one of like the greatest arguments that we had in our marriage up to that point. I know it seems silly now, but you probably have been there. Like, I was just so mad. I was blaming her. Why didn't she make sure the kids didn't? How could she's not mad that I'm mad? Like, does she care? I mean, we were just, it was, it was a pretty big conflict. And that magic eraser immediately just, like, reconciled us. That little piece of sponge, I don't know what it's made of. I know, probably destroys the earth or something, I guess. Kills your skin. I, whatever. But I'm just telling you, it was amazing. The reconciliation that comes through that little magic eraser. In Jesus Christ, we have found a new world. In Christ, there is unity now between even the most bitter enemies, Jew and Gentile. The Bible will say, slave or master, male and female. In Jesus Christ, all hostilities find reconciliation. All the brokenness you experience has a solution. It's a solution, though, that comes only by the grace of God in Christ. A greater power than sin and death. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the biggest issue we have is we just, we're, we just think it's too good to be true. <laughs> the reason the gospel is rejected is not because it doesn't speak to the real problems we face, but because its promise is just too good to be true. We can't even imagine a world in which there is no more misery there's no more sin. There's no more death even? How could that be? We start pondering, how, how is it possible? I mean, we got to have death to have life. And we, we start doing this because all we know is a world marked by the first Adam. But if we know that's the problem, if we know that sin and death reigns over every single human heart, then we know where the solution must be. It must be in a new Adam. It must be in a new world in which it's not marked by disobedience, but by obedience. Not marked by death, but by life. Not marked by sin, but by righteousness. Not marked by hostility, but by reconciliation. And the only way it's possible is in Christ. Only in Christ. These benefits, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Hope, even in our suffering, only come in Christ, nowhere else. So we ask now, Father, that you bring all of us, every single one of us, to look to Jesus. 
He is the Savior. He's the one who can clean up the greatest mess. He is the one in which grace abounds even more when sin increases. He's the greater power. And he is a free gift. So brothers and sisters and anyone else who's here this morning, we invite you to come to Christ. We invite you to come to Christ. Did you hear that? If you're not a Christian this morning, it's Christians who need Jesus. We're going to participate in communion this morning. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper as we do every week because we Christians need Jesus. He's the only hope for us. So this morning... As we open up the table, if you are a believer in Jesus, you affirm what we said in the Apostles' Creed. You've been baptized and you're a member of a local church that preaches the same gospel we do, then we welcome you to come to the table because you should know baptized, Christian, committed to God's people that we're not the Savior. We are not good news. Jesus is good news. We desperately need Jesus, for all of our hostilities, for all of our broken relationships, for all that troubles us, for all that pains us, Jesus is the only one who offers us hope. He promises even this, whoever lives and believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. He will be raised on the last day. If you're not a believer in Christ this morning, we ask you to remain in your seats. We're going to come and get the elements returned right back to our seats. We're not going to embarrass you in any way. We'd simply ask you to remain in your seat as we come and take the elements up on the wall behind me. There are a couple of prayers. We'd ask you to spend a few moments just reading those prayers. Pray them, even if you would. And we're going to come and receive the Lord's Supper this morning because this is where the grace of God is found found in Christ. So brothers and sisters, come now, receive the body and blood of our Lord.